We work on causality and not symptomology. Most of our unwanted behaviors have a root in some kind of trauma, you know, somewhere where you felt alone in your pain and it wasn't okay and it wasn't safe. And when people begin to get in touch with and help you identify that, because that takes the focus out of the part of the brain that's triggering all these impulses to protect you all the time, as opposed to being empowered and saying, okay, now wait a minute, that's not true anymore. Your drinking is really not your problem. Drinking is causing you problems. Hey everybody, John Chisholm here. Welcome to the All the Best podcast. It's my own special blend of motivation and devotion designed to help you find all the best in life. I just believe there's always a way to make your life better. I want to help you get there. Nothing's going to be off limits in this show. We're going to talk to amazing people from all kinds of backgrounds, beliefs, and points of view. We're going to be bringing you insights, advice, and inspiration to guide you into the coolest chapters of your life and maybe help you actually enjoy your time here on planet earth so buckle up kids this is gonna be fun Hey everybody, John here. Thanks for joining me again on All the Best. I started this podcast because I wanted to bring you challenging, helpful, meaningful resources so that you could get all the best out of your life. Let's do something fun, right? We're going to be here. Let's make the most of it. And today I'm going to bring you a dear old friend of mine named David Hampton. And David and I were in the music business about 30, 35 years ago at the same time. I was a young publisher. He was a young songwriter. And I got to work with David for a season as a music publisher back in the day. And even though we lost touch, I have reconnected with him recently and was just thrilled to hear of not only his challenging and, and somewhat tragic experiences as he lost his wife, Trisha back in 2013 to MS, but how he fell into alcoholism but turned his life around and now lives to share that hope and that recovery as a professional addiction recovery coach. And so David is the author of two books, two wonderful books. He's the co-host of the Positive Sobriety podcast. And David and I just have a great time on this show talking and unpacking uh, some of the things around his addiction, the loss of Trisha to MS, and how as she got sicker, so did he. And uh, now at this point, he's dedicated his life to sharing how people can walk in long-term positive sobriety. So I know you're going to really get a lot out of David's uh, interview today. If you're wrestling with some addiction, you can reach out to David. We share that information, but don't wait. Go get some help if you are struggling or lost in addiction. He gets very real about it. We have a lot of laughs, and it, this is just one of my favorite interviews ever. So sit back, enjoy meeting certified professional addiction recovery coach, one of my dear friends, David Hampton. Well, David Hampton, welcome to the show. It is good to be here. Thank you, John. You and I were songwriters and publishers back 
30, uh, yeah. five years ago, maybe? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's been a minute, yeah. right? Yeah, it was. It was about 35 years ago. I think we moved to Nashville in, I always have to think about it. We moved here in 87, but I was starting to come back and forth from Indiana a lot when I first met you. So that mm-hmm. would have been probably at least 85. Yeah, so. yeah. Here we are. And I was already at Starsong. Right. Probably by the time we met. Yeah. we. I was on the tail end of Arios, I think. Yes. And met you there. And then you were at Starsong. And mm. of course, we all got rolled over and exactly. into that. And... Yeah. Well, Arios was a small publishing house that was started by Bill Gaither and Gary McSpadden yeah. and some other folks. And it, it really was kind of an interesting story because my wife Donna and I came to Nashville in 83 to take a job that fell through and Mm -hmm. we had 40 bucks no place to live gosh wound up through a friend i don't even have anymore my life introduced me to gary mcspadden Mm -hmm. gary listened to some songs i guess he played them for gaither and they signed me to a publishing contract which is so weird you'd never have that happen right these Right, yeah, the, yeah, the formula has changed. <laughs> it has definitely changed. I mean, I was just basically off the street, you know, throwing papers out of the car window at three in the morning and uh-huh. making 60 bucks. But I really worked hard at it and wrote five nights a week. And my first year had almost 20 songs recorded. So they hired me. Yeah. They're like, okay, this guy is aggressive. Mm-hmm. And so they hired me to work with with songwriters. I didn't have any degrees. I didn't even have, it didn't even have a, a bachelor's degree then. Yeah. I, I've since gotten one, but I didn't have any business degrees. I had no business doing what they wanted me to do, but man, it yeah. was great. And I, I wound up managing about 12 writers and placing a bunch of songs. You came along and yeah. we became friends. And so yeah. it's been a minute ago, hasn't it? Uh, it has. And, yeah. you know, I always tell people, I still think, you know, tenacity is the most important thing in this kind of pursuit as far as the creative music realm you know yeah and 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 gosh nowadays you know we don't people are doing pretty well who don't have publishers or record deals or anything else and they're almost becoming obsolete yeah you know it was the holy grail when we were down there i mean that was the you know that was the way it worked yeah so we all really tried to find out what they wanted and Give it to him. You know, and, and it worked for a while till <laughs> yeah, it didn't work anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the whole digital thing just so totally tanked, you know, the music business across the board, not yeah. just Christian music, oh, but yeah. all over. And we were young and, and trying to figure it out. And mind me, I mean, back in the day, you were married to, mm-hmm. we called her Patsy. Yeah, you knew her as Patsy. We but... knew she moved to Nashville and decided she really had never loved her name. And since her name was Patricia, she decided she would be Trisha Hampton. Right, you know? right. And it was funny because our first year in Nashville, we sent Christmas cards back home, you know, to Indiana where we were from. Yeah. And, you know, it said David and Trisha Hampton. And we got these <laughs> notes from people that said, what happened to Patsy? Oh my God. Get to Nashville and meet somebody Patsy. else and ditch her. And like, no, she's the same person she always was. Just using the back half of her name. Well, I know there's a whole story around her passing and just yeah. you're plummeting into alcoholism and addiction. And yeah. I want to talk about that in a moment. But on the music side, you know, you wound up really using your music for a couple of decades yeah. in the church. Yeah. And t- talk a little bit about that before we get into 
the other part of your story. Yeah, it was really an interesting time because, you know, it it was one of those things where, you know, we came to Nashville like everybody else. And, and I just thought, you know, my goal is to make a living in music. I didn't know exactly that, you know, you topped mm. out at, you know, at a pretty low salary at some point. Exactly. Unless you're in a very small fraction of you know the of the percentage the Stephen Curtis Chapman's and, yeah, yeah exactly you know and even as a musician I thought well I'll play I was a keyboard player piano player and I thought well if I play for artists and write you know I had enough encouragement for people like you and others about my writing that I thought well that can work but I've got to have a gig you know so I'll play on the road and Trisha was working at Vanderbilt in different capacities at that time and um, we thought, well, that, you know, that, that'll be great. But I ended up, you know, selling furniture and working on the General Jackson as a waiter and just <laughs> a riverboat. Which is a boat. Yeah. Yeah. The Opryland owns or owned or something. It may have sunk by now. I don't know what happened to it. <laughs> it was a riverboat cruise and I was not a musician. I was out there serving prime rib. And, you know, so we did all that stuff. And the first year we got here, Trisha got pregnant with our daughter, Lauren. And, but I ended up traveling with a guy named an artist, Scott Wesley Brown from back in the, in nearly the Jesus movement era, of course, you know, yeah. and he iconic. Yeah. And he was, and he, I learned a lot from Scott and he was a great resource for a lot of opportunities for writing. And, you know, just, uh, he was very generous to me as far as being a person that worked with him. And I was always really grateful for that opportunity. And then I had the opportunity to travel with Steve Green and Michael Card and, some other artists like that. Mm. And those were great opportunities and they were great guys to me as well. No slouchy artist, <laughs> right? You know, right? That, I mean, yeah, for the time we were all in, those were really good people to be with. I mean, mm -hmm. just, just good, you know, people. Good hearted people, yeah. very solid people. Yeah, really great people to be around. And so we did that for a while, you know, and my daughter, excuse me, she was about five years old. And my wife had been having these weird symptoms, physical symptoms, and she had had a lot of in and out from doctors, MRIs, you know, she was experiencing dizziness and then unsteadiness and clumsiness and numbness and tingling and mm. vision problems and all these kind of things. And we were, um, we had just bought a house in Franklin and we were out walking on the bike paths and she would get really hot and get just dizzy and kind of lose mm. her vision. And so anyway, one thing led to another through a long series of about a couple of years of medical back and forth. She was diagnosed with MS, but by the time she was diagnosed, it was a kind of a primary progressive form of MS. And so um, I continued to try to travel for a while and realized that I really needed to be home. You know, there was just too much upheaval when I left. You right. know, I'd fly out on a Thursday and come home on a Monday morning, you know, and that would be a long enough stretch for her to lose her mind with a little kid at home by herself. Oh, yeah, you know, struggling I mean, with it was her just, own yeah, disease. Yeah, yeah, because she had, a, she was getting more and more limited in her mm -hmm. mobility and in her ability to jump up and react to something, you know, and you've got a three or four or five-year-old, you know, going on their own little plan. You kind of have to be able to either reach out and grab them or have a big hook. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so we decided that I really needed to be home. And one of the things that happened was the church that I was a part of, Christ Community Church in Franklin, where we were attending, were transitioning into looking for a full-time person. And they decided that through a bunch of circumstances that that would be 
um, something they would offer to me. And I took that opportunity and it was a good opportunity. It was a good place where you're writing and you're arranging and you're people you knew who played and sang and, right, you know, right. a plethora of talent, especially in that oh, day. In it was, yeah. you know, in the 80s, it was sort of a CCM church, not to be, you know, trivializing that, but it was just yeah. known for people who went there, yeah. you know. It, it, Scotty Smith. and Yeah, Scotty was my pastor for years mm -hmm. and years. And, um. And so it was one of those things where it was a good opportunity and Scotty wanted us to get our hands around and create a creative community instead of just randomly asking famous people to lead worship, <laughs> you know, because that was kind of the MO prior, yeah. you know, was, well, you know, so-and-so can do it this week and uh, let's get Stephen Curtis this week and maybe Ashley Cleveland's here and she can do it next week and Michael Card will be in town the right, following right. week and we could do that. And, I you know, remember just, those days. Yeah, yeah. And it was it was great, but it, as far as consistency and being something that was real sustainable long term, it really was exhausting. Mm. You know, because Scotty was, I think, depending on on relationships a lot more than on strategy. Yeah, you know, than right. than we had. And, It'd be easy to do with those oh, yeah. kinds of names. You know, it just got to be where he didn't want to have to be the guy to fill that hole every week. You mm. know, and and he said, plus we've got all these people out there who can play and sing and are aspiring, you know, in some level to do this. There's somebody's mm -hmm. local best, mm -hmm. you know, who came to Nashville and we ought to be bringing those people in and creating a, right. a community of people right. as opposed Makes to sense. just having, you know, well-known people do it right. all the time. So that was sort of where, you know, I, I really was able to kind of watch my, my worlds come together as far as creatively, you know, my, my writing, arranging, playing, getting people together and creating this thing. And it and it really grew and the church grew and a lot of things were going on. But as that job got more demanding, Trisha got sicker, mm -hmm. you know, and so she was getting more and more debilitated. So I had more demands at home. I ended up moving my office at home to my house after a few years and working from home, except for days I had to do meetings or go to rehearsals or do things like that. Right. So I was, I was home accessible a lot more. And, um, in the process of that, I was becoming, I didn't know it at the time. I don't, I know I didn't know it at the time. I was becoming really emotionally exhausted, you know, after years of doing that and watching her deteriorate really, mm. you know, and being a caregiver because that's mm -hmm. a really isolating role. I mean, we could talk for a whole so hour demanding. on just yeah. caregiving, yeah. you know, because you feel guilty for how you feel a lot and you feel lonely a lot and you, you don't know what you're doing. I mean, there's a crash yeah, course right? in a yeah. few things, but you know, you're, you're winging it. And 24 seven. Yeah. Just you're never you're right stops. There. Yeah. So over the course of time, she was beginning to really be, show a lot of debilitation and Christ community was a Presbyterian church. So, so we drank, you know, I, I used to think Presbyterians were just Baptists that drank, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, we drank pretty freely and openly. Or they drank you know? openly. Right? Yeah, 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 exactly. That, yeah. The openly part is the, probably the key. And so I, you know, had grown up not having alcohol in my home, but my parents one night, I remember when I was about 13, went to a, a dinner, a Christmas dinner. And my dad had been given a bottle of Kentucky bourbon and he didn't know what to do with it because he's like, we don't drink and I don't want to give it to somebody because I don't want to, you know, contribute to somebody else that right. might have a problem or whatever. And so he, um, and I've told this story many times, but he put it in the back of the pantry, you know, where they kept their baked goods, which I joked that now I know where Baptists keep their liquor, you know, <laughs> but, 
he had it back there. And for whatever reason, I had a fascination with it. It was just like, you know, having a body buried under the house. You know, <laughs> we all knew it was there. We didn't talk about it, but I was very curious about it. Exactly. And so I, one night when that night that they were gone, I poured about, my mom had these on the rocks glasses, but she called them juice glasses because, mm -hmm. you know, they didn't drink. And I had mallard ducks on them. It was the 70s. And I poured about half of this Seagram 7 and I and about half 7-Up in this on the rocks glass. And I started sipping on that. And Charlie Brown was on TV. I was in my parents' little wood panel family room, the Christmas tree on. And I began to feel relaxed and I began to feel relief. And I began to feel, I was 13, I began to feel less perfectionistic. I began to feel acceptable. I began to, all these negative emotions that I carried around. I was kind of an emotionally wound tight kid and 13, I guess so. Wow. You know, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, I was just, I was wound tight. Yeah. <laughs> and I was, I was taking piano lessons at University of Evansville Preparatory School of Music. There was a oh lot my. of pressure yeah, there, yeah, you know, so. two piano lessons a week and a theory class a week. And I, I, you know, I had an ulcer when I was 15. I was, you know, oh, the nerd David. that drank wow. my Maalox out of my locker oh, at school. <laughs> you know, gosh. I'm not to paint a, you know, terribly tragic picture, but it was not, I was not all grins and smiles, you know, as a young adolescent. And this was like, this, this drink was like, I was experiencing this, what I used to call my warm hug from God. Mm, you know, wow. I thought I've been lied to. I didn't get sick. I didn't act unbecomingly. I didn't get drunk. I didn't, None of these terrible things happened to me when I drank this. This is going to be a part of my life, you know, and I instinctively, distinctively pressed pause in my psyche somewhere and, and alcohol was going to be a part of my, my world because mm. I couldn't imagine anybody praying for peace when Bacardi sells it for nine ninety nine. <laughs> <laughs> I just did. Who needs God? Who right? needs God when you can yeah. do this? You know, and and oddly enough, that that was a so I think sort of an unspoken mantra mm -hmm. in my head because mm -hmm. as Trisha got sicker, I got sicker. You know, I was drinking more. I was drinking at home. I was drinking privately. I was drinking in a lot of ways that I was trying to find excuses to drink, and I was having some un wanted outcomes to my drinking. I didn't get a DUI, thankfully, but there were things that were happening that were not good. No. And so I kept trying to quit. And, you know, long story, through a long series of events and circumstances, I got into a program and got into an addiction therapist. And I, and that was in 2005. And I mean, June 20th of 2005 was my last drink so far, Wow. you know, by wow. God's goodness. And and grace and all those mm. other things. But that that changed everything. Recovery changed everything because I thought, well, my, my life will get more manageable now, you know, that I'm not juggling this terrible Did you hit a secret. bottom? Did you hit like oh, a, yeah. a terrible bottom that, <laughs> yeah, that you're not telling us <laughs> well, yet? Is that what's was, going on here? You know, I mean, it, was a, <laughs> it consisted of enough nights of waking up, having peed in the closet, you know, okay, and, all right. um, thinking that the armoire was the door to the outside and trying to crawl in it and, you so know, just starting out in other out rooms of, your of the house yeah, and yeah. ending up in other rooms of the house and not knowing how you got there and yeah. having to be told that you talked to people on the phone last night that you have no absolute recollection of mm. doing, you know, mm. and you might want to know that you told so-and-so this and you might want to know that you, you know, if you encounter them today, you might, you might want to be aware that might be helpful to know that if they act less than you really said. you. 
<laughs> some be. of those filters you didn't have <laughs> exactly. let some things yeah. slip. I'll tell you another thing, you oh know, that kind of stuff, God. which seems to just come very freely after you've had, you know, uh, a few too many. But yeah, those things were just happening to me. And I was having to navigate that. I was having physical symptoms. My hands were shaking and I was making mistakes in my playing. You know, I just and I and I felt horrible all the time. Mm. You know, I mean, I had all kinds of issues and physical issues, blood pressure and everything that goes with all that. And I knew I, and I had tried so many times to stop and I knew I couldn't. And I was scared. I was really frightened. And I think fear drove me to fear of losing the things that were most valuable to me. It drove me to get help. And, and so I did. And, but my life didn't get easier. My life got harder. You know, Trisha got sicker. She spent the last seven years of her life in a hospital bed at home. You know, we wow. had a skilled care nurse come in once a week to check on her and then a nurse tech twice a week to come in and make sure she had a good bath and all that and everything else I had to do. And, you know, she had had a colostomy and a urostomy because of the effects that MS was having on her body. And I had to be trained in that and how to handle those things. And, and it just was not uh, getting easier, you know, and, and I had this bargain with God, I thought. That, you know, I'll get sober and, and, and maybe th things will stay more manageable. And they didn't, you know. And so you have a, maybe a sense of disappointment there, yeah. an expectation yeah. that a certain sense of betrayal. I'll do this for you, God, and you do that mm -hmm. for me, mm -hmm. but it didn't. Yeah. So, yeah. I, and I mean, I, <laughs> it, it sounds very cynical and it, and it probably is, but you know, I, I mean, God and I had conversations like, you know, I made a freaking living doing the music you like. <laughs> and, and you can't, you know, is it so skin off your nose that you yeah. could like turn the dial back just maybe two clicks on this? I'm not even asking for, you know, take up your bed and walk level miracles here. I'm just asking for, you know, some relief. And, and it just did not go that way. Mm. And I was, I was angry and I was, I was very, disillusioned and but one of the things that comes with sobriety john and i tell this to my clients and and people have told it to me when i started into my own therapy with all this is it is the most disruptive thing you're going to do in your life um when you give up your medicator and you give up your anesthesia you're going to feel and you're going to pay the price of emotions and you're mm. going to actually know what you think about certain things and then you're going to have to decide what you're going to do about it Things that are true about you, things that are true about your life that didn't just start when your wife got sick and they didn't just start when you started to drink, you know, they started way back and I'm talking beliefs and realities and all this kind of thing. And I started feeling really conflicted in the job I had oddly. <laughs> and this is kind of, I think this is kind of a picture of addiction. Oddly, I didn't feel that conflicted, you know, getting drunk a lot and being a director of worship and arts at a higher profile church for some reason that didn't feel this didn't seem to bother <laughs> no, you yeah. disingenuous <laughs> at all about that but when i got sober i felt really did because i realized i wasn't drinking the kool-aid i was helping sell mm. in a lot of ways and and so i i got really uncomfortable in that and and that went on for a long time and i went to a, a monastery for a week up in kentucky or just on the other side of the line in Indiana. 
And I spent about a week with these Benedictine monks that some people had told me about. And I did a, a guided retreat with one particular advisor. And he, he asked me a lot of really good questions, you know. And I went up there, you know, to the monks because some friends of mine had told me about it. And also because I didn't trust the, the evangelical paradigm that I had been living mm. and working in forever, mm. you know. And I realized that I had a lot of responsibility to come to terms with my my truth. And I didn't have to jump on any one thing right away and make a big, you know, blow trumpets and announce myself as departing from, you know, some type of religious practice or anything. But I did need to think about it, you know. And in in the book I wrote, After the Miracle, I talk about the guy that, you know, his friends lower him through the roof to see Jesus, you know, and he takes up his bed and walks. And we all love the miracle stories, you know, yay God and hallelujah and, you know, healings. And we all love that. I believe in that. And I think it's, you know, I celebrate that too with people that we all see suffering. But uh, my thought about that was, you know, he's having a holy crap moment when he has to roll up his bed and walk home because mm. suddenly I've got responsibilities. Everybody in town just saw what happened to me. I'm obviously able to take care of myself now. I'm obviously going to have to find an, a, probably an occupation or a way to make a living. My mom or whoever has been taking care of me is, is going to have a new role in my life and I'm not going to need them in the same way. So that's going to change. And there were a lot of parallels that that resemble sobriety to me that were I, that I was seeing in these miracle stories, you know, of the Bible, of Jesus asking the man by the pool, you know, do you want to be well? Do you even want to be well? Yeah, yeah. which I always thought was a little sarcastic of Jesus. <laughs> you know, I mean, it maybe caught him on an off day, but um, oh, Jesus, that'd be cruel. <laughs> really, like, the, the guy, guy's laying there, you know, <laughs> lame. Do the you're... best he can, you know. <laughs> and um, that's a huge question. Mm. Do you want to be well? Because if you do want what you say you want, it's going to come with some realizations and it's going to come with some change and, and disruption, to say the least. For you and for the people around you, you've got people that you've trained to treat you a certain way and you've got to train them now to treat you another way that you don't need to be handled and managed in the same way. And, wow. You know, all that stuff. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm off on a roll now, but it just... It is disruptive to get sober. I'm <laughs> just mm. put the exclamation point on it right, right there. And I love know? what you said. You've trained people around you to treat you a certain way. Yeah. And I've, I've believed that for a long time. We mm -hmm. do teach other people how to treat us mm -hmm. in the way that we treat them, the way that we behave, the way that we carry yeah. ourselves. And, and what it, we believe we deserve and in it, some cases. The entitlement thing. And, yeah. and if there's an addiction involved, it just exacerbates all of that problem. I love the parallel you're you're drawing out of that miracle story to sobriety. Well, uh, you know, it just was it was that was the way I saw myself. I felt like, you know, okay, this is happening and it's amazing and wonderful, but hard uh, as hell. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Literally amazing, wonderful <laughs> and hard as hell. Yeah, because what am uh, I going to do? You know, because here I am in this in this role, I'm starting to have these conflicts, and and you know, and and the monk was Father Bennett. He was a he was not he's no longer with us, but he is a he's a guy that is a straight shooter, you know. And these guys had a great sense of humor. I didn't I don't know what I was expecting. I think I just solemn and you know whatever. And he was very engaging, and 
he said, do you believe God loves you? And I thought, kind of crazy question is that to ask me? I have been in church all my life. I John made, 316. Yeah, I've made a living telling people, you know, <laughs> God loves you more than anything. Um, and he said, no, he said, I didn't ask you if you, if you knew it. I asked you if you believed it and if you believe it for you, you know. And I said, and I literally remember that moment. And I just, tears came up in my eyes. I said, I don't know. I don't know that answer. It does, this doesn't feel like love. And I wouldn't do this to my daughter. So you, you tell me, what's love look like to you? You know? And he said, well, he said, do you believe that God can weep with you in this? Do you believe that this grieves God as badly and hurts God as badly or more as it does you? that your wife is experiencing this, that you are experiencing this, that your your pain took you to a place where your medicator turned on you, you know? And do you believe that God sees you through your pain lens and not through your failure to perform better lens, you know? And that was a shift because I had done things so right, you know, <laughs> I thought. Right. Um, except for the little pesky drinking problem that I had. Other <laughs> than that, you know? And so that was a turning point for me. But in the process of that, I, I had to ask myself, okay, well, you know, then, then what do I pray for? You know, and I came to the conclusion that courage, peace, and wisdom are what the, they're the three things that I can really ask. You know, I don't know if God's going to, I mean, this is my own personal bent. I don't know if God's going to heal the people that I love and pray for and ask for miracles for, you know, I don't know if he's going to let my parents live to be a hundred. I don't know if he's going to you know, do all these things that would be wonderful. But I know that I can ask for peace and courage and wisdom for whatever is in that road, you know, that I'm going to walk that I may not want to walk. Mm -hmm. But I confused a lot of my beliefs with what I wanted and not with what I could. Don't you think we all do oh, that, yeah. though? I mean, yeah. that, that just feels like the whole culture, Christian culture that I grew up in as well, didn't grow up in a Christian home necessarily, but, you know, have been part of the Christian culture for 45 years. So you get kind of steeped yeah. in those things, the the Jesus genie in a bottle yeah. kind of doctrines, I guess. Yeah. And, and I think that as I have aged, I have far less expectation in a good way. Not in a, you know, cynical cigar chomping way, although I can go there pretty, pretty easily sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, but honestly, I just I think I've learned I'm trying to learn anticipation above expectation, mm -hmm. you know, um, that there may be something I have no even idea to anticipate that could be good for me in something as opposed to, you know, it better be a magic set under the Christmas tree or my Christmas is crap. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, man. Well, let's don't go there. Tell <laughs> <laughs> a lot of bad Christmas memories. Oh, so, Lord. So, so Trisha is sick and dying. Yeah. And you're getting sicker and you hit this bottom, mm -hmm. peeing in the closet. Okay, I've never done that. So uh, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, you're not might have done worse. But, <laughs> but, a lot. So you have this turnaround. You're getting sober. Life is not getting better. And how, where were you, kind of, in all this when she passed? And pick up from there, and yeah. how you've 
become a recovery coach that you are now? Well, she passed away in 2013. And, you know, it's so interesting because she was in hospice care at home for the last probably six months of her life. And we knew that she was she was rapidly declining. And her nurse practitioner came in one day and he said, if you if you have people that she would that would like because she had been in and out of consciousness. I mean, she really mm -hmm. was on the morphine and really wasn't aware, as right. we know, anyway, of what was going on around her. But if there are people that would like to say goodbyes to her, people that would like to be a part of that, you need to call them and have them come today and not tomorrow, but it's mm. probably going to be today. Mm -hmm. And I remember having the feeling after even all these years and all those months of, of hospice. Seven years in the bed. Yeah. Wow. And, and then six months of hospice, mm. knowing that we've made these preparations and arrangements and all mm -hmm. this. I said, today? <laughs> you know? And I was like, Oh, no, we're not ready. You know, we can't, it can't be today, you know. And he just looked at me, he smiled, and he nodded. And he's he was a retired Episcopal priest as well as nurse practitioner. And, uh, and he just said, yeah, I know, you know. And that was like mm. how we're, you know, how, how we are always so surprised, mm. even when we know or we think we know what never you know, ready. potentially yeah. outcomes mm. will be. But she passed away at 1030 that night. Lauren and I were in bed on each side of her and she was loved and, and probably 60 people came through our house that day mm. once word got out you know and it was a special special day in very the sense hard that, day i'm sure yeah and it yeah. was the hardest day and and a, and, a, and one of the sweetest days mm. you know but she passed away and i remember my my therapist at the time said you know had asked me are you prepared for the anxiety you're going to experience when trisha leaves this world and I said, Marilyn, <laughs> I am not going to be anxious. I said, I mean, if anything, I'm feeling guilt about the relief I'm going to feel. You know, honestly, this horrible has been bad, blah, blah, blah. And she nodded her head. She said, I, I understand, but um, this is going to leave you with a lot of holes and a lot of gaps and a lot of time. And all the reasons you've had for not pursuing things, for not doing certain things, for not living in certain new realities, a new career or this or that, that you've said you'd like to do, but you've got these responsibilities and those are going to be gone. And you're going to have a blank slate in front of you and, and you need to be thinking about what your life's going to look like and what you're going to give yourself permission to experience. And I thought, well, you know, food for thought. <laughs> yeah, file that away. <laughs> and yeah. Maybe, and, maybe not. Maybe so. But anyway, long story short, after 35 minutes of talking here, I realized that when she did pass, I had absolutely this, these gaping holes, mm. you know, there was just so much time and there was so much room and there was so much everything. And, and I realized that I was on the wrong bus professionally, I think. And I had help realizing that. And, you know, by then a lot of cast of characters that I had started out that job in had changed and we were kind of on a new page and I was not the skinny worship leader in skinny jeans. And I, you know, I wasn't that guy and I didn't want to be, and I wasn't, mm -hmm. and I didn't, I, I, I needed, I needed to make a shift. Mm -hmm. And I had started in a, a recovery coaching accreditation program. It took a little bit of time to go through. And as I got into that, I realized that that was really where I really loved spending my time was with recovering people. I'd, you know, I used to go out and speak a lot after I got sober and I used to have a lot of people work with me and call me and 
I'd follow up with him, but I thought, well, it might be nice to know what you're doing. <laughs> I said, I'm just guessing at this, in this recovery thing. <laughs> Maybe there's some it's like, just don't drink. Yeah. Just don't drink. That's it. I mean, just like, don't drink. The Bob Newhart sketch, yeah. just stop it. Have just stop it. That? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of like that. But um, I got into all that and got into a practice with some really great counselors that invited me to be a part of their group. And in the last seven years, I have really just seen recovering people. You know, and not just mm. alcohol, but substances, behaviors, things that people are engaged in and helped people either get into treatment or, or determine whether they need treatment mm. or what is the best course for everybody. Is everybody going to respond this way? And I've gotten to work with some great nonprofits here in Nashville, Music Cares, Porter's Call, people that have really help guide people along and, and that are in the music business. Right. You know, and um, I think that's surprising to a lot of people is to yeah. realize that addiction is just as prevalent in Christian music oh, gosh, with the musicians, yeah. the art is not all of them, of course, but you know, plenty of yeah. the famous people we all know and love have yeah. either struggled with that or maybe even still do, whether they're out about it or not. Yeah. You know, it's and, like, and there's a lot of shame involved with addiction, and, especially in the Christian world, oh man. My, to, yeah. To to admit that you struggle with pornography or or and drugs your and alcohol, depends on and it. you're in exactly you know because we're professional Christians. That's right. You know that's right. And I talk I talk about that about myself. You know, back when I was a professional Christian, because you your income does depend on your behavior. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, maybe in politics to a certain extent, but most people can go to IBM <laughs> and you know get a little drunk and go home, and yeah. people kind of you know say, yeah. hey, you got Wink a little wild. It, yeah. Then, thing last night but but people in a platform in in Christian music and a worship platform they have very few places to go and 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 I I don't know if people realize how hard it is for people in these positions to trust right you know if i tell you am i safe you know if i do this who's going to find out you mm -hmm. know all that kind of thing and you provide a safe place mm -hmm. as not a therapist but as a coach mm -hmm. to West Tell us the difference between a therapist and a coach. Well, sometimes that's a good question for me because you get into a lot of stuff. But a coach is going to be skilled in helping you with, you know, motivational interviewing. In other words, things that you're going to need to ask yourself about mm. yourself to help you get permission to tell yourself the truth, mm. which is, wow, we could you camp know, out on that. Yeah. To get yeah. you to the point where you're willing to tell yourself the truth. Yeah. Because if you can't tell yourself the truth, you're sure not going to tell me. You're sure not going to tell anybody else. Wow. You know. That reminds me of an old Amy Mann lyric that I loved, and it was, you've got to be smart if you're fooling yourself. <laughs> I love that line. That's a great yeah. line. Isn't I have not heard line? that. Yeah. And another one she said I thought of earlier, this goes back to the 80s, Amy Mann and Till Tuesday was her oh, yeah, group. Yeah, Remember yeah. that at all? I do, yeah. And she said, most people get by with either bourbon or God. <laughs> I'm, I started to say that earlier in, the, in our interview, but then that came back to me with, you know, that other quote. But yeah, it's so true. Yeah. You've got to be smart if you're fooling yourself. And yeah. I think we probably all do that to some degree, but it can get out of hand. Yeah, it does. And so you kind of help people yeah. hold the mirror up and decide whether yeah. or not they're going to. And then, and then through their sober process, you know, what. Uh, you know, the do you want to be well, but then what is it going to look like on mm. that walk home? You know, what am I going to do with this? Am wow, I, David, that is so amazing. You know, it's, it's a great, it's a great thing to be able to walk with people and see them build up the courage, mm. you know, as telling themselves the truth and others and what that's going to be and what that's 
going to look like in their own life, mm. you know. And belief systems sometimes are things that they have to confront as well. You know, mm. do I, is this what yeah. I, what I believe, wow. you know, um, kind of sorting through the rubble of yeah what's true yeah yeah what would you say to someone out there maybe they're a christian songwriter or artist or or it doesn't matter worship leader or not Mm -hmm. but they're struggling you know with a secret struggling with an addiction Mm -hmm. where do you start where i tell people to find their most trusted friend if they have one and that i say that because a lot of people with the platform don't have you know, close relationships that they trust. But if you have that trusted one friend that you can, that you can sit down with and say, this is what's going on with me. This is what I'm doing. And I don't know why. And I don't know how to quit. That's a first step because just hearing yourself say it out loud, it becomes real. And then you have to decide what you're going to do with it. Mm. And then I would say, you know, depending on what your issues are, find the group that you can, if you can join a, even a 12 step group, I'm not, of the belief that that's the only way to get sober, but I do believe it provides you connection and and a good next step, you know, and then get into some good, good solid therapy, you know, and I don't just mean, you know, go talk to your pastor at church. That may be fine, but I think you need somebody that really understands the issue that you're dealing with. Right. More on even the, uh, I don't want to say scientific, but what's going on in the biological well, yeah. arena, what's happening in your brain Yeah, because addiction is a neurological issue. It it's really a, is, yeah. Emotional issue. It's a, you know, all that. It's all it's, of it. It's not just don't, you know, don't do it anymore. Or just yeah. stop it, you know, yeah. like the Bob Newhart thing. It really is all about, you know, the neurocircuitry yeah. in the brain that started maybe even in infancy. Right. And most of our Unwanted behaviors have a root in some kind of trauma, mm-hmm. big T or little T, mm-hmm. you know, somewhere where you felt alone in your pain and it wasn't okay and it wasn't safe. And when people begin to get in touch with that, mm-hmm. you know, that's what a good coach or therapist can do with you and help you identify that because that takes the focus out of the part of the brain that's triggering all these impulses to protect you all the time as opposed to being empowered and saying, okay, now wait a minute, that's not true anymore. You know, this resides in a different part of my brain now, and I can talk back to it. But if I don't know it, it's there, I can't. I just know that, you know, I believe there's a bear in the woods, but I don't really see a bear. And I don't really know a bear, but I, I believe there's a bear, you know. Right. So you so, move into that self-protection, yeah. fight or flight, yeah. you know. Total the, anxiety-driven. Amygdala hijack, exactly. I call it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that lizard brain just gets to, takes over with... Mm-hmm freak out and mm-hmm. the cortisol and all the yeah. cascade of chemicals that actually releases into your system that causes mm-hmm. your adrenaline to peak and stay in that alarmed mode. Totally. Yeah. And totally. in, in, in fight, flight, or freeze all the time. And when you think about it, it's not a big mystery that if you find something that calms that for you, mm. whether it's a substance or a behavior, mm-hmm. uh, that you would go back to it again and again and again and again. Yeah. Yeah. So, wow. So that's what we work on. We work on causality and not symptomology. You know, it's not, your drinking is really not your problem. Drinking is causing you problems, you know, but it is not your problem. The problem is there's some other stuff going on here that we haven't tapped into that you haven't been able to identify or tell yourself the truth about yet, Mm -hmm. you know? And when you can do that, then you're, 
inclination to drink is going to diminish greatly and sobriety is going to get a lot easier. Mm. But Powerful. So, so you have the sobriety, positive sobriety podcast. Yeah. With my recovering friend, Nate Larkin. Yeah. Um, author, speaker, great guy. Very well known in, yeah. in Nashville anyway and maybe yeah. other parts of the world, but for yeah. the Samson Society and yeah. kind of a men's movement, if you will, toward recovery. Yeah. And whatever great it book, is. Yeah. Samson and the Pirate Monks that mm-hmm. identifies his story through sexual addiction right. as a pastor. You exactly. know, in the yeah. in the days that he was starting to really where where his addiction was really starting to escalate. Mm-hmm. And and so yeah, we've got the Positive Sobriety Podcast and we bring on clinicians and people with their own recovery stories, but we we like to highlight guests that are doing something really positive in their recovery with Mm. their story. Mm -hmm. You know, people that have started everything from, you know, their own nonprofits to recovery martial arts to Mm. some faith-based kind of recovery work or whatever, but people that are reaching out into the into the recovering community because addiction's not going anywhere. Mm. I mean, obviously we're all, you know, we're all living with something. You know, but our culture is just more and more saturated in our behaviors and in our substances. And unfortunately, I think we're all going to, those of us that work in this area are going to be busy for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. How can people reach you? Give us your website. What's the easiest way to contact you? Yeah. Thank you. Should we need (laughs) what you do, bro? Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. I have a website, David B. Hampton, CPRC, which stands for Certified Professional Recovery Coach. David B. I'm sorry, David Hampton, CPRC. David Hampton, (laughs) CPRC. I wondered where the B came from. (laughs) Yeah, the B is on my other thing. DavidHamptonCPRC.com. And that has a place. It'll kind of give you my story, what I do, what my kind of approach is and also a contact opportunity where I'll get an email from you and mm-hmm. you can you can fill out a thing there and it'll it'll shoot me an email and I'll get in touch with and you. And can you work with people anywhere or do they I have can. to be in Nashville? Yeah, my certification is a little different than a licensure for a therapist. So I can actually, I've got contacts and clients in multiple states and we'll do Zoom or FaceTime or whatever works for you and book it in our sessions and, and see what happens. Awesome. David, this has been rich. Thanks for just being willing to share Man, thank you your so recovery much. story and to catch up after all these years. <laughs> my gosh, all these years is right. But it is so good to get to sit with you, John. I'm so glad. Thank you. Thanks, thank you. David. Thanks for hanging out with me today on All the Best. If you like the show, be sure to share it out with your family and friends on your social media and drop me a line at john at johnchism.com. I would love to hear from you. I also want to invite you to jump over to my site right now to sign up for my free 31-day motivational email series is designed to help you go for all the best in life. If you're needing some real change, fresh motivation, and inspiration, this could be just the thing to get you going. You can find it at johnchism.com, and I'll see you next time.